try to find something that you are passionate about. I mean, first you have to look inside and be honest with yourself and, you know, um, and then, and then decide that if you are going to make the jump, like you say, if you find something, uh, to do on the side, or if you think that you can, uh, you know, it can become something more than just a side venture, commit to it. You know, I mean, commit, don't just like, eh, I think I might try it. You know, I mean, really, really get after it and, and see how far, how far it can take you. Welcome back to another episode of the underdog podcast where adverse moments become building blocks for the future and knowledge nuggets aren't something you eat, but something you learn. As always, you can listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google play. So be sure to subscribe and leave a comment. And with that said, let's get after it. Come on, get them. Uh-oh. <laughs> when you hear those words on a fall Sunday afternoon, it's none other than Bengals radio color commentator, Dave Lapham. Through the ups and downs of being a lifelong Bengals fan, one thing is for sure, Dave brings the energy every Sunday. That's why we are excited to have him as a guest on the Underdog Podcast to talk about his 30-plus years on the radio and TV of entertaining fans and producing at a high level. Welcome to the UDP, Dave. Appreciate it, Calvin. Appreciate it very much. Thanks. Absolutely. Yeah, we're super, super excited. Um, you said you're a Bengals fan, Calvin. Are you a season ticket holder? Whoa. <laughs> I mean, I need a raise, coach. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Well, we, oh, uh, man, I shouldn't ask that one. Yeah, I shouldn't really. ask that one. Yeah. Welcome rank. to the UDP. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shoot. Yeah, that was the wrong way to go. <laughs> Um, While we're partners in crime. Yeah, I, I was very clear with Dave. I'm a diehard Browns fan. Grew up, and it's terrible as I say it, is is the uh, uh, Browns backers on Sundays. I, it sounds like I always say that I grew up in bars on Sundays. It's not really the case. Uh, I go to church and then go to the Browns uh, backers. But uh, long story short, um, today we come together from Ohio. Great guy, Mr. Lapham here. And uh, super, super excited. I uh, had the opportunity to sit down with him prior and Ray, can't wait to uh, let everyone know about Dave Lapham's story. Yeah, for sure. And I know we like to talk about the underdog moments. And you've been a person who has sustained excellence, as our mentor Ryan Hawk always says, for 30 plus, you know, 35, 45 years, uh, you know, on radio and television. And really get us kicked off. Can you just talk a little bit about how you've been able to sustain that excellence for that long of a time and what's really kind of gone into being able to be successful? Well, I think, you know, the key is finding something that you love to do, you know, and, uh, and doing it. I, I've always, uh, you know, told my kids who are kids are now 40 year old adults with their own children. But, you know, as I was raising them, I, I, I just feel very fortunate every day when I drive to work, I don't think of it as work. You know, I think, my avocation and vocation are the same thing. And if you can find something that you're, you know, passionate about doing, um, you know, you live a good work life. If, if you drive to where I, I feel sorry for people that every morning get in their car and drive to work and they're in traffic and they're white knuckling their steering wheel and they're already, you know, got a lot of tension and, you know, dread of what they're going to be going to do. I, man, I just, Fortunately for me, I just can't identify with that. You know, I've heard a lot of people, a lot of my friends over the years talk about it. I, I feel sorry for them. And that's a tough way to, you know, live your your business life. And, and mine's just the opposite. I mean, I absolutely, you know, feel blessed and fortunate every day that uh, able to do something that I, you know, really enjoy. Now, I did do other things along the way. Um, you know, I was uh, ran a pulp and paper division of a specialty chemical company and had other jobs as well as the the broadcast work, but at this uh, stage of my life, it's uh, it's strictly the broadcast thing. Um, you know, I did do college football as well as Bengals on radio. I did uh, started doing SEC games, did uh, Big Twelve games when the, the the Big Eight became the Big Twelve um, when the Southwest Conference and the and the Big Eight merged to form the Big Twelve. I started doing those games. I did those on television for over twenty years with Fox. But you know that the constant has been even when I was if something at my other work job workforce job whatever it was was bothersome I knew when the weekend came I'd have my release man I'd be going traveling somewhere doing college football and and then um you know doing doing a Bengals game on radio and for a while there I was doing a high school football game here locally on Thursday night 
would fly to the college football game on Friday morning, get ready for that on Friday, do the college game Friday, get on a plane and fly to the Bengals game on Sunday and do the Bengals game on radio. Man, it was just a just a great football weekend. Now, so it sounds like it started out almost like a, a side hustle in a sense. So what would you advice would you give to someone who is in a job that they maybe not don't love, but they may have a side hustle or they're looking to get into something but are scared to maybe take that leap. How were you able to do that? Yeah, I think I think that, um, you know, try to find something that you are passionate about. I mean, first you have to look inside and be honest with yourself and, you know, um, and, then, and then decide that if you are going to make the jump, like you say, if you find something uh, to do on the side or if you think that you can, uh, you know, it can become something more than just a side venture, commit to it, you know. I mean, commit – don't just like, eh, I think I might try it. You know, I mean, really, really get after it and, and see how far, how far it can take you. Uh, I think, you know, commitment and work ethic and all the, you know, all the ABCs that everybody talks about and whatever they're doing. And, and, you know, like you guys too, I'm sure you're passionate about your jobs. And even, even though you like your, what you're doing, you still have to find the discipline and the work ethic to do it. As, as well as you can every single day find the you know the secret sauce the formula whatever it is that that allows you to you know to get it done at a level that you're comfortable with you know and if you're prideful in your work you know set a high bar and try to get there every single day no matter what you're doing and then how how have you dave you know 35 and and I'll give you credit for your playing career, even though Mr. Blackman over here, almost <laughs> 10 years, 10 years in, uh, what, nine years, eight years with the Bengals, and then in the USFL, which I'm going to ask a question yeah, on it was that. 12 altogether. It was 10 with the Bengals okay. and, and two with the USFL. That, that's right. So I'll give him credit. So I think a lot of that, and I'll talk a little bit about your childhood, but sticking on the, you know, being the color analyst and, and being with the Bengals broadcast, you know, team TV and, and whatnot for 35 and like you said, big 12. And how do you... This is, I guess, a little selfish question. Preparation in your career. I think everyone wants to know. They hear you come on uh, one o'clock or twelve o'clock on a Sunday. Tell, can you walk the listeners through like the preparation and the game work and everything? Because it's a lot more obviously than just that. But can you give them a little behind the scenes of, like you said, committing to the craft? You're passionate. But what are maybe some of the disciplines that have helped you be successful for so long? Yeah, I think it's it's uh, you know you have to have a thirst for knowledge. You know, and, and when you think. Uh, when you think you know everything you need to know, you're in trouble, you know, because there's always uh, there's always something else to learn. Uh, be that subject matter that you're going to be talking about from a football standpoint, be it doing um, the methodology you use to prepare or how you execute on the air and just all kinds of things. I mean, you never shut yourself down to, to anything and everything. And, um, you know, I think prepara preparation, repetition, breed comfort level. And I think preparation, you have an earned confidence when you feel like you've prepared as best you possibly can in any job that you're doing, sure. you know, and that, that's what struck me about Joe Burrow. When I saw him at the combine, this dude get up in front of everybody, you know, in the NFL world with a, with a very confident persona. It's an earned confidence, you know, and the guy is just, he's so prepared from a football standpoint. He had that great year because of preparation. People, you know, you, you, you don't see behind the closed doors of everything that goes on. All you see is that final performance. You know, you, you see the, the film, the actor in the film. You don't see all the preparation that went on to, to you know, perform in that role. And it's the same thing. I mean, there's there's a ton of prep. And like I said, when I was doing high school, college, and, and NFL games, man, there weren't enough hours in the week. And the hardest uh, thing to do was high school football because there were more kids more names, um, you know, you, you, to pronounce all the names correctly, little things like that. If I'm a grandfather or a parent watching the game and the stupid uh, broadcaster <laughs> mispronounces my, my son or grandson's name, I'm done. I may turn the TV off. So, sure. you know, you got to go to the athletic director, head coach, and the kid because sometimes you may get three different pronunciations. <laughs> but if you can't find the son, the, the kid playing to make sure that you're saying his name right, try, find somebody you trust, you know. that. So, I mean, little little details, you know. You just you, you have to make sure you don't take anything for granted. Um, you know, if I went into a football game uh, not having done any work, flying by the seat of my pants, I'd feel like, you know, I was – walking out of my house to get in my car naked 
<laughs> right. I mean, you know, it'd be like, I don't feel comfortable with this. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not ready to do this. So, um, it, it, it is, it's, there's a lot of preparation. There's a lot of study. I, I try to look at, uh, at tape. I try to talk to as many coaches as I possibly can, as many players as I possibly can. And, um, and then during the course of the week now, you know, life doing, doing just Bengals games is, um, gives me a lot more preparation time, but I do a show Monday night for three hours, a show uh, Wednesday for two hours and a show on Friday for three hours. So that's eight hours of Bengals radio programming. Forget the game. The game's the easy part, right? You know, because it, you're just describing the action as it unfolds. That that three plus hours is simple. The other stuff, man, you got to be really prepared to, you know, make sure you can go in a myriad of directions from a subject standpoint. You know, for eight hours of programming during the week. Sure. Well, I want to put it on a quick rewind here. So uh, a little bit of Dave's toughness I learned about was maybe stemming from basketball. <laughs> want to want to touch upon. Dave Lapham and some some experiences. Uh, those that don't know, uh, he's from Massachusetts, and uh, he had a great high school career. Um, he was a great basketball player, football player, and track. Um, but there were some camps growing up that might have helped you in some of that toughness. There was a camp that uh, the well-known Mr. Bob Knight, and I uh, didn't know if you could maybe touch upon uh, maybe some of the the basketball funny, uh, maybe toughness stories that really helped to evolve you as a, as a tough player. Yeah. I, it, it, uh, there were no, there weren't football camps in Massachusetts. Of course, I'm 68 years old now. So, um, you know, they, they, they didn't have, you know, contact football camps or even non-contact football camps back then necessarily. And I really liked basketball a lot. So I, I would go to basketball camps in the summer to get in real good shape for football. And uh, so I'm like a 15-year-old a uh, sophomore in high school, and I go to a camp up in, uh, up in Vermont called Pine Point Basketball Camp, and the, uh, one of the instructors at the camp is Bob Knight, head coach at West Point at the time. That's how old I am. And his star player was guard Mike Krzyzewski, captain Mike Krzyzewski at West Point. So they're at this, they're at this camp, and they're giving a lecture on, on, on defense, man-to-man defense, uh, you know, uh, denying the foot, uh, denying the basketball, and then if you're on the uh, away from the the side of the ball in the court, slough off and play angles and everything that went along with his defensive philosophy. So I'm just, you know, just mesmerized by the guy and just soaking it all up like a sponge. And so he uh, he looks around the crowd and he says, "How many uh, how many football players we get out here?" So I'm thinking he thinks this is good, and I probably raised my hand. There's like four of us, four or five of us. And I'm already like, as a sophomore in high school, I'm already like 6'3", 250 or whatever at 15 years old. So he uh, brings us all out in the court, and it's it's midday on asphalt courts. The sun's pounding down on them. I mean, it's you could fry an egg on the court. It's so hot out there. He goes, hey, you uh, big, strong football players, take your shirts off. Uh-oh. Shirts come off. Flex for us a little bit. Show us, you know, show us how you've been working out. Uh, as a matter of fact, why don't you guys start doing push-ups? So he gives like another half hour lecture and we have to do push-ups the whole time. Now you can't do push-ups for a half an hour, obviously, or I couldn't, I know that. So I'm doing, you know, I'm belly flopping. I stop, you know, and he'd turn around and yell at you and you keep going. I was literally peeling skin off my belly and my palms and my hands from that, the hot, you know, asphalt court. And he, uh, he goes, you know, and I'm, I'm cleaning it up because you can't, repeat Bob Knight's language here on a podcast, but, you know, he, dropping F-bombs and everything else left and right. And basically his message was, you're here to play basketball. This is not a football camp. You're a basketball player. So then the rest of camp, every time we saw Bob Knight walking around, uh, you know, the, the camp, um, you had to deny, you know, your, your friend or you're walking with the ball or if you weren't walking, deny a tree or, you know, uh, or he, he'd get all over you. And uh, I remember – a few drills during the course of the camp, he would come up and just, you know, like smack you, cuff you in the back of the head, just just give you a little whiplash. Yeah, that wouldn't go well. That wouldn't today. go well today. <laughs> that doesn't happen now. But he put his hands on a lot of kids. I'm like, whoa. But honestly, he had that, he had something about him. All of us loved the dude. I mean, he was, he'd, and, and um, you know, other people uh, that were part of his entourage would say, if he didn't really think you had potential, if he didn't like you, he, he wouldn't even pay attention to you. So he really likes you. Oh, great. He really likes you. So that that's one. Another one is people uh, 
you know, might rem- remember, not I'm, not, I'm not sure of any of our listeners in this era, but Wayne the Wall Embry, who played for the Cincinnati Royals, played at your alma mater, Miami of Ohio. Um, he came to another basketball camp that I was at my freshman year in high school. And um, so I was probably six feet, a couple hundred pounds as a 14-year-old freshman. And um, he's given a lecture on rebounding. So he picks me out of the crowd to box him out, you know, do some of the things he's talking about in terms of offensive and defensive rebound. He's the offensive rebounder. I'm the defensive rebounder. Box him out. I didn't really box him out, but I ended up getting the basketball and everybody, all the campers start cheering and laughing and everything. And he is not happy about it. So he's like, let's do it again. And again, we're out on a court, you know, and there's like cinders on the court. It's, it's an outdoor thing. And, um, he six, eight, 300 and whatever pounds, he just ran me over. <laughs> First thing he hit was my chin and my hands as I'm trying to brace my fall. And I have cinders in my chin, cinders in the palms of my hand, pulling them out. And uh, let's do it again. He runs me over like two or three times. And, you know, I'm just like, <laughs> that it felt like a tidal wave on my back. I'm like, this is the most forceful thing I've ever <laughs> experienced in my life, man. I don't know. This is unbelievable. And I was, I was almost like in shock stun. So we get done, and he goes, uh, um, you know, hey, I, you know, I might have overdone it. You know, I apologize. Where, where, are, you, where are you thinking about uh, going to college next year? I said, college. I said, I'm a, I'm 14 years old. I go to Wakefield High School. You're a high school? I said, yeah. He goes, oh man. So now he feels really <laughs> bad about it. He goes, well, when you're ready, just let me know. I, I think I'll, I'll get you into Miami. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'm. Fr- from Boston to Miami's a long drive down to Florida. I, I fly down. I, I don't know. My parents couldn't, my brothers and sisters, nobody could go down. No, no, I'm talking about Ohio. That's not that far away. Miami, Ohio, that's the first time I've ever heard of it. And he goes, I, I, I'll make sure you play football and basketball at Miami, Ohio. I'm like, that's the first time I'd ever heard of Miami, Ohio. And, and after getting beaten up by Wayne the Wall Embry, I was thinking I might want to go there <laughs> if they put out people like this big dude. So everyone probably thinks, you know, Lapis, you know, tough from football. I'm sure obviously he has his football stories, obviously, but the basketball. That, that's, that's right. That's when we talked. That just blew me away. I'm telling you, basketball players, I think in general, might be the best athletes in the world. I mean, it, not not just back then, but even watching any era of it. I mean, their size and their gracefulness, now overall athletic ability. It's just it's it's freak stuff. Every every single game that you watch, guys. Yeah, and then you go so from Massachusetts, you go to Syracuse. Yes, and uh, then from Syracuse, then obviously drafted to the Bengals. Right. In uh, let's see here, that was in eighty. 74. 74. Okay. Right. I'm trying to make you younger. There you go. You do I look like younger it. though. Um, and then you played in the Bengals uh, and obviously went to the Super Bowl. Yes. So I was curious. One of the questions I had, you know, getting to that, you know, everyone desires to get to the Super Bowl and obviously win, you guys lost to the 49ers. But what made that best Bengals team in, you know, uh, the history of the organization get to that point? And maybe what are some takeaways that someone listening, what made that team special that maybe they could implement into their you know career or their team? Yeah, I think I think um, the word team <laughs> at uh, at every level that you can think of the definition of the word team. I think that's what that's what separated that uh, you know that group. Um, it's 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 remarkable. I, I never I can never remember ever in the huddle Isaac Curtis, Chris Collinsworth, um, Danny Ross, whoever it was saying. Get me the ball, man. I, I'm ca- just get me the football. Nobody ever. It was never about any individual guy. Nobody ever was in the quarterback's ear like, "Come on, man. You you know, you're missing. You're missing me. I I, I can I can do this." I. It was never. There was never any eye. It was it was un, unreal. And you know, some games Isaac would light it up. Some games Chris would light it up. And and uh, and I think that's the key. That's the key to success is if you got multiple guys. That can contribute. Um, at the end of the year, our quarterback gets MVP of the league. Kenny Anderson does. We had guys that could make arguments. That was our team offensive MVP or our best player. May not have been you know, the guy that got league MVP. And that's that's when when um, when you that's going on. You know, one plus one equals three. You have some synergy going because if you can if you can spread the field with all kinds of weapons and attack you know every single quadrant of the football field. And they got to make decisions, and you can't double team everybody. It's it's hard to it's hard to cover 
every part of the field, unless you have as good a player as defensively as what you're being presented offensively, you know, the coaches are going to find the weakness. The quarterback's going to find the weakness. They're going to dissect and, and dice and slice it up. And, that, and that's basically what we did. I mean, offensively, you know, we were, we were a good football team that had a lot of, a lot of really good players. And, and when you look at it over the years, um, you know, like the, the Buffalo Bills, they have uh, their triplets of, of Jim Kelly, uh, Thurman Munson, and Andre Reid went to four straight Super Bowls. Yeah. In Dallas, the triplets of Troy Aikman, Michael Irvin, Emmitt Smith won three Super Bowls in their time frame. So it's like having multiple guys that can, you know, execute at a high level and the offensive line giving them time to operate. You know, it doesn't matter how good those skill guys are if they don't have an opportunity or time to get things done. It's a moot point. And, um, you know, and then one hand washing the other, you know, the offense keeping the defense off the field, converting on third downs, defense forcing turnovers, giving the offense more opportunities. It was just one of those things where, you know, uh, as, as a team, all three phases of, uh, of, of the game of football just played exceptionally well together. Everybody got along. Um, and then our head coach, the two best coaches I ever played for, Paul Brown and Forrest Gregg. And Forrest Gregg was – a no nonsense guy that uh, <laughs> that everybody responded to. I remember when he first got up and he, st- he stood at the podium. He had Super Bowl rings hanging off his fingers, and I'm sitting there as an offensive lineman looking at him and saying, "Vince Lombardi said that that man is the greatest football player ever coached." And he had Bart Starr and Paul Horning and all these, and he said, "That's the best player ever coached." I'm going to listen to this guy. He's got Super Bowl. He had instantaneous credibility with everybody. And he put together a you know a really good coaching staff. He could draw guys that wanted to work with him, and and I mean it was just man, it was just so much fun that year. We were really good and and just played well. Other than the Super Bowl, I mean I, I'll never get over that because the biggest game of our lives, you know, turned it over four times, allow a goal line stand to take place against us. So in my mind, that's five giveaways, and San Francisco gave it up once, and we lose by five points. So self destruction. Mm. If you know, if we just take care of business and don't hurt ourselves, I mean, we beat the Bengals even more than the 49ers beat the Bengals that day, you know? Sure. And I think the one thing I hear is self, selfless, not selfish, right? And mm-hmm. I think I've learned that in the business world, you know, translating from, you know, college athletics or from the game of football into the business world of, I see the best team, you know, people and teams inside of our organizations that are willing to just pick up their teammates and not worry about their individual success or at times even what they make, if they take care of what is right and what is the best for the team, it always works out in that favor. But getting people to understand that and see that is extremely difficult. And that's where you see the difference in the Patriots versus the Browns, right? Is a perfect case, you know, selfish. Yeah. And, and, and those are things I just think that are really things that maybe that Lap is saying that I've seen in the business world as well. Yeah. And I say, and I would agree. I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, a couple of teams that I've been on, whether it was in college or high school that were really, really good. And then I think about all the other teams and those are the teams that stick out because of the camaraderie that you had. And then I, you know, having had a chance to be in the sports world and now be in the business world and, you know, have been at different companies. I still remember a, a couple of handful of companies that I were with and why they were successful because of the the camaraderie and, and the way the team was built within the company. And I see that's what, you know, those are some of the focal points that we're trying to do here with, you know, the folks that are watching some of our, on our sales teams and really just starting to build that team because that's what it's going to take. You've got to be selfless. And if you can really transition that over, that's going to stick out when you do start to have those wins and you're going to remember, let's go to happy hour after work. Why? Because we care about one another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's like everybody has a role. Everybody has a job to do. And if you do your job well, individually, collectively as a team, you're going to have a good team. Mm-hmm. But if you do your job well and then try to do a little bit more to help somebody else, you know, do their job, not slacking yours, but, you know, just trying to be a better teammate or whatever the case may be, you're going to have a great team, not just a good team. So, and, and the other thing, both both teams that the Bengals had that went to the Super Bowl – in both cases, uh, for example, uh, Anthony Munoz is a constant on both of those football teams. And, and Anthony Munoz, not only a Hall of Fame player, but a Hall of Fame individual and, and a Hall of Fame work ethic and a Hall of Fame, you check every box. James Brooks 
same deal, man. This dude is great a player. Nobody outworked James Brooks. A.J. Green, when healthy with the Bengals, is one of those kind of guys that can raise the whole boat because, you know, it, you're all you're all uh, talented or you wouldn't be in the NFL, but then you watch a guy who's a perennial pro bowler like Anthony. You know, he should have bought a condo in Hawaii, I told him a long time ago. <laughs> he, he lost money. He could have, you know, every year he went out there, he could have made a lot of money keeping that thing for over a decade. But uh, Anthony... Um, you know, A.J. Green went to seven straight Pro Bowls. And these guys are the hardest workers on their team. So as a teammate, you're watching, man, Anthony's doing all that. Ugh, I, what am I doing? Am I doing enough? I think I'm, I better up the ante here a little bit. And everybody's bar is raised, you know. And when your best player is got, you know, the work ethic, the character, everything else, he raises the whole boat. When your best player is a jerk, the boat sinks. Yeah. The yeah. Boat sinks. We, we talk a lot about speed of leader, speed of the pack, or you know, high tide rise all boats. And I think that's really, really important. If you look at our units as we call them, our centers, even, you know, how do we, you know, create that atmosphere where that leader is 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 you know, not selfish and selfless and that's looking out for their teammates and always looking for the best outcome. Um, speaking of someone, uh, and I found this really unique, Herschel Walker, talking about sustaining excellence. So those that don't know Herschel Walker Incredible athlete, uh, one of the most. It's rumor they never lifted weights, <laughs> right? Well, <laughs> well, you'll find out here shortly. Right. <laughs> so, so uh, Dave went and played for the USFL uh, New Jersey Generals. I think I got that right. Yes. And Herschel was a teammate. And can you talk about? Because I think it's really interesting for and, people. And the to, president owned the team. Yeah, yeah. Donald Trump was, my, was the owner. <laughs> of the That's team. what Dan Horde asked me. So there's two questions. Uh, can you touch upon why Herschel Walker was so special in, you know, the commitment to the craft uh, and, and how he approached each game? And then, two, what was it like to, you know, play for uh, now now current President uh, Trump? So. <laughs> right. Uh, well, yeah, Herschel was – you talk about a genetic freakazoid. He had, he had such a, a natural level – high level of testosterone in his body – that was just manufactured by the you know the physical stature and nature of Herschel Walker, he he would have failed every NFL drug test and not have taken anything. I mean, he was just that that freakish. Um, he had strange eating habits, not not the norm. Couldn't really have a roommate because he sl he didn't sleep you know a whole lot. It was he he was he was incredible. The guy's body fat was un basically untraceable. I think. Uh, he ran a four two seven four two eight forty in helmet and shoulder pads, uh, it, it, at like two hundred twenty eight pounds. It looked like a, a jet going to take off at the end of the runway. Watching that guy, and and he just was was chiseled, and um, it was just work ethic and dedication to it. He'd get up in the morning and run. He'd get up in the morning and run to the cafeteria. He'd run to work out. He you know he's just always always working on bettering himself physically. And he wasn't a big weightlifter, but a few uh, a few teammates. This is the night before a game. Kent Hall, God rest his soul, the late great Kent Hall was the center with the Generals I played with, and he was the center for the Buffalo Bills for a number of years, Pro Bowl center. Um, and uh, Flutie, myself, we Herschel in his room at the hotel in between like a couple of queen size beds. He's watching Love Boat reruns or whatever, and he's doing he's like ripping sit ups. The night before a game. Night before a game. Roll over, rip and push ups. I'm talking a hundred per set. Hundred sit ups. Hundred push ups. Hundred sit ups. I'm like, H man, we gotta we got this is like nine thirty at night. We get a game, right? I do two thousand of each a day. What? Sets of a hundred. Two thousand a day. That's what he was doing. The night before a game. Freakazoid. Oh wow. my so god. So he would he would do it at different stages, but I mean, just However, whenever he had a chance, he'd you know take the opportunity to just start. Once again, another another thing: talent plus work ethic, right? Yeah. And that's the greats of they have talent, um, but what makes them great is the work ethic. I think in whether it's sports, business, once again, broadcasting, you know, uh, anything that of that nature. Um, and what was it like? So President Trump owned yeah. the New Jersey Generals. What was right. he like? Because obviously he was. That was a while back. So what was the uh, kind yeah. of the whole? He was like, I guess, 38 years old at the time, 37, whatever. Um, a guy that had a plan. And not only had a plan, he had a plan A, B, C, whatever number of plans he had to have. And, of course, he was he was the guy that uh, that pushed 
going head to head in the fall with the NFL because his whole his whole thing was, um, you know, he felt like eventually the USFL would merge with the National Football League. He couldn't get into the NFL. I guess there were some owners that th- thought he was a maverick, and obviously he was a maverick. Uh, but you know, he he felt like okay, I'll buy this uh, USFL team and, and eventually work my way into the National Football League and almost got it done. Um, they, they went to court and uh, the, the court ruled in favor of the USFL that the NFL was a monopoly and uh, based on Sherman antitrust law that uh, they, they were monopolistic and, and, and the, whatever award was granted to the USFL would be triple because of Sherman antitrust law and it was a dollar. So it could triple to three bucks. And the reason the jury only gave a dollar is there wasn't a schedule that fall in com- competition with the, with the NFL. So that was a, obviously a mistake, I guess that was made, but at any rate, um, he was very competitive, uh, knew exactly what he wanted. And, um, you know, I remember one time him saying that, you know, buying the, um, the New Jersey generals couldn't get an NFL team, but buying the generals, even that aspect of football still got a lot of media attention print, electronic, every form of media attention, you know, not only nationally, but internationally. And he said, whenever he was, the generals were talked about, uh, or Donald Trump with the generals, Donald Trump owned a New Jersey generals, comma, Trump tower, comma, Trump casino, comma, all of his real estate holdings were, you know, part of the story. So you can't pay for that publicity. It was free marketing, advertising for all of his real estate enterprise. Interesting. So he wrote it off. He hmm. wrote the generals off to his real estate empire, basically, I think, you know. Yeah. So the rich get richer. That's the name of the game, I guess. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Interesting. So I do have one question before we transition towards the end. Um, so we've talked about, you know, the success and all of those things. But having been a Bengals fan for a long time, we have had some down years. and Some? Not as many as Cleveland, but we've had some down <laughs> years. But my question is, so we have some of our sales reps listening in, and obviously sales is a very tough job. When you are, you know, week 15, week 16 of a really, really, really tough season, what keeps your drive going to go out and still perform hard on a Sunday? Yeah, that's that's a great question because, um, you know, I remember when I was working with the pulp and paper division of the – Texo Corporation, uh, especially chemical company, back in the day, um, sales it's 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 a it's all a grind. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a tough grind. So it's I, in my I would take my football experiences and kind of roll it over into that those periods of oh man, it, when I was a manager and and managing a sales guy that hadn't closed the sale in nine days, you know, it's like. <laughs> You're going to get some dry spells. You know, you just have to keep grinding. This is where your work ethic comes into play. You know, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. All the it's cliche stuff, but it's also so true. You know, and and um, how many people out there would would cherish the opportunity that you've got here right now? And you thought so when you first took the position, you wouldn't have taken the position. So you know, um, don't feel sorry for yourself. Suck it up. Go back to the basics. You know, and that that's what I would do as a player. You know, if I if struggled for whatever reason against an opponent or something in the game and, and watched the tape, and I'd, I'd go right back to the very – strip it down, go right back to the basics, you know. Make sure my stance is right. Make sure my footwork is right. Make sure – so same thing in the sales part of it. You know, strip it right down to the very ground floor and, and make sure you got all the bases and basics covered, you know, right. Um, so, you know, just the repetition of, of – of the keys to success or whatever they may be, they can never be pounded in on you. And, and again, just like once you start taking anything for granted, mm-hmm. dead meat. You right. know, you're just dead in the water. There's no doubt about it. You have to, you have to, uh, you have to stay sharp with your game, whatever that game is. Yeah, committed to the commitment, transferable skill sets. I mean, that's a lot. Like, how do you transfer? It doesn't once again have to be sports to business, but even for some of the folks in any career taking one learning experience and then how do you transfer and then level up? Yep. And I think that's a great output. We always talk about keep it simple and aggressive, right? So many times, and even in football, we talk to people like yourself or anyone in, in the sport is like, sometimes you just got to get back to the fundamentals. Yeah. 
Stop yeah. trying to get too right too uh, fancy. You know, fancy with it and, and try to get over overdo it. Like do what you do really well, and, and then and then evolve that. Get back on that pace. Get back on that plan, and then let it come and, and mature. And let the like make a lot of good plays or make a lot of good calls, and then some some really great things might happen. You know, Super Bowl season that I the season I played on in 1981-82 season learned a lot about goal setting. You know because. Uh, the year before, we were 6-10, and 10, Forrest Gregg's first year. And we had a lot of really close games, one-score games. We just didn't finish them. So, you know, you go into the next season. Uh, Super Bowl, man, that's a pie-in-the-sky dream. That's a pie-in-the-sky goal. Why not have it, though? You know, don't minimize your goals. But, man, you better set a lot of intermediate goals along the way here. Yeah, sure. So my first goal was to go 8-8. Eight and eight. Don't have a losing season. So, you know, we we got eight wins pretty quick that year. Okay, well, that eighth win, check. Then the next goal was to win 10, double digits, check. Got that done. Next goal was to win the division, check. Got that done. Next goal was to win a playoff game. The Bengals had never won a playoff game in franchise history until that 1981-82 season. They'd been there but had never won a playoff game. Beat the Buffalo Bills, check. Now, AFC Championship game. Man, win the AFC Championship. Freezer Bowl against the uh, then San Diego Chargers. Check. Super Bowl. Man, there's the ultimate goal. It's right there. Win the Super Bowl. Eh, didn't get it done. But along the way, you know, you start climbing a ladder of success a little bit. Man, you're starting to feel pretty good about yourself. You know, you've, you've checked off about six or seven goals. And you got, as a result of you know, satisfying goals along the path, you did get a chance for that ultimate goal. And, and I think that's the better way to do it because if you just have one goal in life, man, it's pass fail. It's either you get that big, huge goal or you feel terrible about yourself, your life, man, find things along the way in your life goal wise that are not easy achievements, but once you get them, you feel good about it, man. You keep going for the next one. Small wins. Exactly. Yeah. And then all they, they add up and multiply. And next thing you know, man, Man, that, I'm up that ladder of success. The ground's a little further away than it was, you know? <laughs> Can't get to the Super Bowl by skipping preseason, right? Yeah, exactly. And a lot yeah. of people just see that, hey, I'm going to get to the Super Bowl. It's easy. Right. There's nothing Nothing good comes being easy. I don't care where you are, what you do, unless you win the lottery. And even, you know, it, it's it's there's nothing that way. And it, it, Easy easy becomes, you know, guys that, that uh, are so talented that they they achieve it. They end up taking things for granted. And, and are satisfied easier. You know what I mean? It, mm -hmm. It's like, it, it, like you said, it didn't have to really bust my butt for that, you know? So you end up taking it for granted a little bit. Yeah. And last thing before we go to live, I want to talk about the charity work. Mm -hmm. I think that's really, really important. We're super excited to team up with you and, and Ken Anderson. And can you touch upon uh, the Down syndrome and the support and kind of the why behind that? And then we'll head to the Q&A here. Yeah. I, you know, simple philosophy uh, with a lot of charities that I work with is that uh, my whole concept is even the playing field. You know, I mean, I feel very fortunate to have um, been exposed to and experienced a lot of, you know, great things in my life, and not everybody has that opportunity. So um, whatever, whatever it is, be it economic, financial, or be it uh, environmental, or be it education, or be it disability, and uh, like the Down Syndrome Association and the Ken Anderson Alliance, have teamed up for, we do a golf tournament and, um, both, both charities do other fundraisers, obviously, but you know, it's, it's basically try to help those that need help. And, um, you know, uh, with Down syndrome association, it goes back to me. I, I dislocated my foot from my ankle, um, uh, playing basketball <laughs> in the summer after my freshman year in football, I was in winter, uh, summer workouts. First game came down on the side of someone's foot and my ankle, my foot the wrong way and snapped my foot right around my leg and dislocated my ankle. So I had to have a spinal surgery, a spinal tap and put my ankle back in place, wrap it up and all. So I go to this uh, camp and I'm a rifle range instructor. And there were some kids at the camp that had down syndrome. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it was cause I was bigger or whatever the situation, but I had a I had a connection with a lot of these kids, and I did a lot of work with uh, kids with Down syndrome. And man, they're the most innocent, loving, <laughs> just great people to to be with. So um, that's where that kind of passion came from. And I've I've always felt like anything you can do to even the playing field for those that are you know not as fortunate as you, 
uh, be it from a physical standpoint, an economic standpoint, an educational standpoint, environmental, whatever it might be, reach out and help. Yeah. Well, thank you for being a leader in this community and, and really appreciate all that work. So sure. with that said, our first live Q and a, so I think, uh, Calvin, why don't you, uh, lead the way here? <clears throat> Do we want them to ask? You want me to go ahead and ask? No, no. I want them to ask. Let's see what we can get, uh, work, work the room here. Mr. Uh, Coach Nate Mahan. No, Coach. I like it. Coach Mahan, up, coach of the uh, Hamilton. Yes, coach of Hamilton, the Big Blue. Hi, here Coach. In Cincinnati, Ohio. Hey, Dave. Cal, what's up, guys? What's How you doing, Deck? Having me on. Awesome stuff. Cool. We'll fire away. So, so Dave. First off, I love the Coach Knight stories. That was great. I'm texting with my dad, who's also 68, and uh, he's like, "Yeah, Coach K was the point guard." I was like, "Well, I didn't know that." So. <laughs> Pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Cool uh, now, just real quick, as a as a football fan and a Bengals fan, what position groups do you see as some strengths and weaknesses for the Bengals in 2020? Well, you know, um, I I think strengths could be the the defensive line. I think that uh, DJ Reader I think is a big addition for him. I think he'll help Geno Adkins. I don't th- you know uh, Geno Adkins um, had to play a lot of snaps last year. I think it's another guy in the rotation. J.J. Watt talks about D.J. Reader making his life easier when he was down there with the Houston Texans. And uh, D.J.'s a big space eater that pursues and hustles every play. And he's a Pro Bowl caliber player in my mind, too. So I think it's going to make Geno's life easier, Carlos Dunlap's life easier. You know, I mean, when you have guys like the the fearsome foursome of the of the Rams, uh, you know, it's like, you can't double everybody, you know. You you got Deacon Jones, you got uh, you got Merlin Olson, you have Lamar Lundy, you have Rosie Greer. It's like you can't double team everybody. So I I think that the defensive line could and should be Sam Hubbard, Carlos Dunlap, Geno Adkins, DJ Reader. Now it's followed up by an area that they addressed um, in uh, in in uh, free agency, you know, and the draft linebacker. You know, they, that's they gave up twenty one carries of over 20 yards last year second most in the nfl that's you, you gotta tighten that up that's awful yeah that's that's not getting it done yeah so i, I think the linebacker core is going to be totally rebuilt you know it's going to be a um there's going to be a lot of scrutiny i think on the linebacker core going to be a lot of scrutiny in the offensive line that's been uh, that's been rebuilt uh xavier suafilo they signed in free agency from the texans uh, you got the 11th pick in the draft lining up at the left tackle position, Jonah Williams. So that's 40% of your offensive line that hadn't taken a snap as a Cincinnati Bengal. So it's good. there's going to be different combinations, new combinations everywhere, but hopefully be an upgrade in terms of performance. Um, so I think the two groups that are going to be really looked at are the uh, the offensive line and linebacker positions. But, you know, they signed a couple of uh, defensive backs from the Minnesota Vikings, uh, McKenzie, and uh, is, is going to – be in the slot. He doesn't miss as a tackler in the slot. That's a that's a that's a big deal. Um, Trey Wayne's outside at at the uh, cornerback spot. Mike Zimmer cut his teeth as a secondary coach. Feel good about how they've been taught and how how they can be. So um, you know other strengths. We talk about the uh, you know the triplets potentially uh, could be the Joe Show, Joe Burrow and Joe Mixon, and uh, AJ <laughs> a- Green. You know, A.J. Green, if, if if A.J. Green has the type of season he's had his first seven years and not the last two or is injury hampered, that's a pretty good trio. That's a pretty good, you know, threesome uh, if the offensive line lets him perform a little bit. Talk about preparation. It's June. I like that. I mean, you, you're you on it. I like it. <laughs> he lives in that. No it. doubt. That's, that's, that's what I love. Yeah. Well, thank you, Nate, for the question. Really appreciate that. Next we've got uh, Chris. Chris Chance, are you available? You there? Hey, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. How you doing? Hey. Very good. Very good. I I enjoyed this uh, greatly. Hey, uh, Lapa. Uh, you know, I'd say um, you know, there's always a lot of complaining about uh, different uh, different people on, that are you know commentating and such on the TV, but I rarely hear um, people complaining about you. So you're. Uh, I was just wondering, <clears throat> do you feel like you're you're quite a bit of a natural at it, or have you had to to work at it quite a bit over the years? You know, I, I, I feel like um, I had a chance to go into coaching. Forrest Gregg asked me to go to Green Bay with him and work with the offensive line when he took the job up in Green Bay. Had a couple of college coaches, uh, Mac Brown at Texas and 
the Mad Hatter when he was uh, at Oklahoma State before he went, at, went to LSU, Les Miles, and now he's at Kansas. He he inquired, you know, so I, the, the coaching part of it, I, when I was done playing, I thought, well, I want to stay involved with the game somehow. Coaching could involve relocation, uprooting family, you know, multiple times, uh, everything that goes along with it. And uh, I went to the Newhouse School of Communications at Syracuse as an undergraduate. So I, I took, you know, newspaper writing, magazine writing, TV, radio courses, all that stuff. So I thought, you know, maybe the broadcast part of it might be the other way to go. Could be some stability for family. And it's worked out. Both my kids still live here. They're raising families here. So from a family standpoint, even though selfishly I may have wanted a coach, I wasn't, didn't want to sacrifice the family aspect of it. But I, I, I felt like if I did get into broadcasting, I'd handle it like a coach and really, you know, get into it. And um, so I, my, I feel my job simple in terms of uh, Dan Horde does, he calls the play. He says, what happens? My job is to say, why? I never watch the ball. At the snap of the ball, I get my eyes as wide as I can. I look at everything else. And all that action will take me to the ball. And while I'm watching it, I see why things were successful and unsuccessful in that particular play. So there's always, in my mind, I always see like three or four things I could talk about. You got to pick one of them. And I, I realized that, you know, a lot of people watch the game on TV. So I have a monitor in my booth. We have a monitor. So I'll look at the TV and of the three or four things I'm thinking about, I'll see what the camera on replay, what they decide they're going to go to. And I'll try to stay in tune with that. If that that's not, in my mind, wasn't as big a factor in the success or failure of a play than something else I saw. I still might talk about something else, but I am sensitive to the fact that, um, and since I did games on TV um, and did have directors and producers in my ear on TV, and I would, there's a talkback switch where I can say to the uh, director, give me the pits, give me the uh, the end zone of uh, end zone shot of the offensive and defensive line because I want to focus on so-and-so on that pass rush. And they give it to me. So I know that those kind of dialogues are going on. So, you know, if I trust the analyst, the TV analyst is going to find, you know, talk about something real meaningful to the play, I'll stay with the TV monitor. I'll say that's, that is, it's so great to hear you say that because that is a frustration for me. When I was coaching, that was one of the hardest things for me to learn was to how to watch the game from that. And then I struggle with it now because I haven't done it for years, but I've always wondered how do you, how are you guys able to execute that and and see the entire? But you have another monitor because they're zooming in on the ball. As the average fan, we watch the ball, right? And and what about multitasking? You got quarterback. You got quarterback guys. Yeah, man. I mean, I I, I don't. I, I never look at a monitor until the play is over. I look at the field because any TV um, shot that they show is only a slant. It's a forty-five degree slash. It's a. It's not a panoramic right. shot. So it's tough uh, for me. When, when I'm home at Cincinnati in the 50-yard line, perfect. Some of these boosts on the road, though, man, you're stuck in high end zone, can't see a damn thing. You know? <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's a little bit harder, so you do have to rely on the monitor more, which I hate to do. But if you have the, if you have the right uh, vantage point, man, you can, you can see everything. You can see, I can see stuff on the sideline, can talk about stuff that interaction went on the sideline, substitution pattern. You know, I, I try to see – Everything I possibly can on and off the field. That's yeah. awesome. Man. Might have to get uh, the Joe show uh, if it's not already done. Yeah, right. <laughs> and actually, Chris, I'll, I'll say this: he's a huge Bengals fan. He's my next door neighbor, so I'm a little, little by. We have a lot of good uh, Bengals conversations. There so you go. He, I said, hey man, you got to get on and talk to Lap. So he was really curious. That's a great. I, I that answer uh, obviously is truthful, but that gives me such a more well-rounded viewpoint of your job, you know, and how that all kind of comes into. To scope and, and realm that's that's incredible how you're you're looking at it all and i'm sure yeah, it's a I mean, science for there, sure there's no uh in my mind there's no benefit to regurgitating how dan described a play in other words it's in different words it's like right say you know if, if dan says you know and he's sacked for a nine-yard left well why was he sacked who beat who beat who, who didn't who didn't execute who did execute and it's funny with with tv um you, you have to make decisions sometimes. Do you talk about a guy that uh, that won or the guy that got his butt kicked? 
<laughs> and normally you like to talk about the guy that won, you know. But if the guy continually is getting his butt kicked, it's by different guys. He gotta, becomes the story now, you know. You got to highlight that. Yeah, that, that, that guy's having problems with everybody. <laughs> you don't want to be that guy. Yeah, I don't want to be that guy for sure. Awesome, awesome. Well, appreciate it, Chris. Great question. Great question, man. Um, on to Miss Tanya. Miss Tanya Moore, do we have you available? Okay, she might be having some technical difficulties. No, no worries. What her question was is, what is the outlook uh, on the Bengals overall? And you kind of touched upon this with Burrow uh, coming on board. Uh, Ross is a player you haven't really touched upon. Obviously, Green coming back from injury, um, and then talking about some players, uh, Jackson and Bates, so uh, stepping up this year. So, is there some guys that you look to, like a Ross, to step up? Um, some of these other guys. What are some of the individual players that need to step up? Uh, for the team, yeah, I think I think uh, John Ross is a is another uh, <laughs> another big variable. Mm-hmm. If he can stay healthy, when healthy, AJ Green and John Ross, uh, it, it, you you have two guys on the perimeter that can just stretch the field. Mm-hmm. If, if if you have speed, a, a defensive coordinator's worst nightmare at any level is a one play drive. They don't want the ball thrown over their defense's heads for an eighty yard touchdown. Or they don't want a guy catching a seven-yard slant and turning into a 77-yard touchdown running catch like A.J. and John Ross have done and can do. So um, That having, makes a big difference, right? Over, oh. Taking someone over top of the defense uh, that's that fast. Sure. I mean, that, that can really take a top of a defense off. When you, when, you have, when you have two guys that can run like that, all right, what, what you have to do is if you don't feel like your cornerbacks can handle it, now you get to play cover two and your safeties you know, will, will vacate the middle of the field and, and help. Now you now you have Boyd, you know uh, you have T Higgins, you know you have uh, CJ's you have tight ends, wide receivers in the middle of the football field in the, at the slot positions that can butcher the middle of the football field. Like I said, you can't double everybody. I mean, whoever gets the one on one matchups when you have all these all these weapons, like I talked about with Isaac Curtis and Chris Collinsworth and Dan Ross, whoever had the one on one win. Right, win, and the quarterback, quarterback's looking at, for that one on one. You know, he's saying, "All right, here, this looks like this guy's potentially going to get that one on one matchup." Po- you know, pre snap, post snap. Well, he didn't find the one on one matchup as quick as you can and get it there. That's the, you know, that's the whole concept, whole idea. And if you have talent everywhere, yeah. usually, usually you're, if teams have their fourth cornerback is as good as your fourth receiver. That's usually a little bit rare. Usually the receiver cores are a little bit deeper than cover corners. Mm-hmm. And teams that advance and play great defense somehow have have found or gotten a hold of four guys they feel comfortable can throw out throw out there in the field. Usually you get down to that third and fourth receiver, they're usually better than the third or fourth corner on sure. mo- in most cases. Well, I think, you know, uh, the Bengals' future uh, as being a Browns fan is a little hard to say, but I think it's bright. They get some protection for Joe, and he's got some weapons, and, and some things are stepping up. And like I said, defensive line and battle is one up front, in my belief. Um, so I think those that are listening, hopefully you guys learned uh, some some knowledge nuggets from, uh, from uh, you know, the podcast. And to say the least, Dave, was you know, you've been a great guy for this community. Um, appreciate Definitely it. an inspiration. Really appreciate your time. And Um, Thank you guys that are all listening to our first live podcast. Appreciate all the support and uh, look forward to those that want to jump on tomorrow. We do have uh, defensive coordinator Marcus Freeman from the University of Cincinnati. Awesome. And uh, former Ohio State Buckeye and standout. Hard for me to say that, but Michigan fan (laughs) over there. Yes. So feel free to join in. Just shoot us your email and we'll uh, we'll get you guys on the Zoom. So thanks, Lap, for all of your time and nothing but continued success. Appreciate it. And I think future head coach. Marcus Freeman. For yeah, sure. Yeah. Future head Absolutely. coach, for sure. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks for the invite. Appreciate yeah, that. Thank, thank, you, so thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to The Underdog Podcast. Please subscribe and rate our podcast on the Apple and Google Podcast apps. And send our Twitter handle a screenshot of your rating at Underdog Pod with your shirt size for a chance to win a free t-shirt. See you next week on the UDP.